We also hope to consider this evening the Heidelberg Catechism, question 53, which uh, providentially happens to be about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So that was nice. But question 53 asks us, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? And the answer is given us in two, two statements, two truths. First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. So we hope to consider that this evening, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit really and truly God? And then the second truth given us in our catechism is that he is given to me. Isn't that just like our catechism? Always bringing it personally to us. He is given to me. So that through true faith, he makes me share in Christ. And all his benefits comforts me and will remain with me forever. Well, there's our catechism. Now, as we have already said, my friends, today is Pentecost. And uh, that was interesting to me when Pentecost came up on my calendar this week. And thinking about writing a Pentecost sermon when I've just preached, what, uh, probably two months uh, on Pentecost, right? On the wonderful baptism of the Spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the ascended King, gave to his church on the day of Pentecost. Well, uh, then I went to look at the Heidelberg Catechism for this evening, and it says, What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? Clearly, God in his providence would have us consider the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So, many things said tonight will be things that we've already spoken of, but this kind of repetition is a happy repetition. Now, I've broken down the catechism then and our study of it tonight into three truths. Uh, The third one is one that I added to it. It's already contained in the catechism, but it's such a clear scripture truth, and it It's so relevant to what the uh, Catechism says in the second point there that I thought it good to add that on there as well. But the first question given us is the deity of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit God? You know, my friends, that when the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door, that one of their doctrines is that the Holy Spirit is not personal. And of course, if he's not personal, then he's not God. He's not divine. Well, obviously, we believe that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are all equally divine. And how do we establish that from Scripture? Well, again, just to go back in our study, if we go back, you'll remember to what we talked about when we were considering Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And you'll remember in Acts 5 and verse 3 that Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Peter accuses Ananias, and later Sapphira, of lying to the Holy Spirit. But then in only a few verses later, Peter says, Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now very clear, isn't it, that lying to the Holy Spirit, in Peter's mind, is the same thing as lying to God. Is that clear? That's how Peter understands it. And of course, Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, giving us this teaching, and so we know it is true. That when we lie to the Holy Spirit, we lie to God. Because they are one and the same person. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Godhead, as we stated. Now, this is not a doctrine that Scripture elaborates on a great deal, and certainly not explicitly, as we had it in Acts 5. But there are other passages, and I put this one on the outline as well, Matthew 28, 
verse 19. This is the very well-known text of the Great Commission. Now you have in Acts 28, verse 9, or in Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus saying to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit, put right there with the Father and the Son, if the Holy Spirit was not divine, that would be a very awkward statement, wouldn't it? If I said baptize somebody, or if I said, let's, let's leave baptism out of it for now, let's just say I, I'm going to write a letter, and I'm going to write it in the name of, uh, of God the Father, God the Son, and then insert your own name there, Chris Inglesma, or whatever your name may be. I mean, we would recoil at that, right? The idea that you would put your name on a level with the Father and the Son, Right? And yet, that's exactly what's done here with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is put right on a level with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They are three equal divine persons. Now, in church history, this was wrestled out in, again, a controversy, as almost all the truths of the Christian faith were. And it's interesting that the Nicene Creed, which took place in 325 A.D., right? so if you can just roughly assume that Jesus lived from 0 to 30 A.D., and now 300 years after that, 325 A.D., the church came together in a council in the city of Nicaea and defined the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, deity of Christ. When they came to the section on the Holy Spirit, you could see in that table I gave you there in the outline, they simply said, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. No different than what's already in the Apostles' Creed. Now, I also put the Apostles' Creed there for you, so you can see that. right? We just confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and we don't say anything more about it. Well, in 325, when the burning issue of the time was the deity of Christ, they repeated that statement, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, already at this time, the Arians, do you remember that term from, from your study of church history? Remember the followers of Arius? The Arians taught that Jesus Christ was the first created being of God the Father. And that he was one step lower than God the Father. Now that was an error, and the church condemned that error at the Council of Nicaea. But I said this morning that one error never seems to just stand alone. And another error grew out of the first error, equally dangerous. And that is the denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Because the Arians went on. When they denied the deity of Christ, they, and I should say the deity of Jesus, the person of Jesus as he, as he uh, uh, walked on this earth, they denied that he was fully God. Well, they went on then, and, the, and there's a name for these people who denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. So now notice that when the Nicene, uh, or when the church fathers met again at the city of Constantinople, in 381, however many years later that is, roughly 60 years later, now notice the statement that they make about the Holy Spirit. Now, instead of simply confessing, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, they say, and in the Holy Spirit, who is Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. Ah, you see, now, in that intervening time, this controversy had grown out of the deity of Christ, now to question the deity of the Holy Spirit. 
and the fathers at Constantinople, who, by the way, were just going to repeat the truth of the Nicene Creed that had been given them in 325, they went on to modify it slightly and to add in these words about the Holy Spirit. And so God, in his providence, again, gave us the Niceno-Constantinopolitan, if you can say that, that's, that's good, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, right? The fathers at Constantinople taking the Nicene Creed and modify, augmenting it, changing it slightly to include a full defense of the full deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we confess the Nicene Creed in this church, that's the creed we actually confess. If you go in our Forms and Prayers book, you'll see that it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed that we're actually confessed. In fact, when we say Nicene Creed today, that's generally what we mean, is the creed that was produced in 381, not the one that was produced, well, I shouldn't say not the one, because the one produced in 325 was just slightly uh, added to in 381. That's why we say the Nicene, Constantinopolitan, right? We're trying to say that these two were kind of brought together. Well, so that's an interesting bit from church history, that God in his providence gave us a definition and a defense of the full deity of the Holy Spirit after this doctrine, too, was denied by those who fell into the error of Arianism. Well, our catechism goes on, then, to teach us about this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the catechism saying that he is given to me so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. Now, in the first place, then, we see that the Holy Spirit is a gift from Christ. He is given to me. And again, I take you back to what we studied in Acts 2. In Acts 2, we saw that the Holy Spirit was not something that the people there were even, uh, they had been uh, told by Jesus that the Spirit was coming. But it's coming, the coming of the Spirit being poured out upon them was a purely sovereign act of God's grace. It came unexpected upon those people. And it fell upon them, is the exact word used, right? It fell upon them. And elsewhere the word is used that the Spirit was poured out upon them. And they were baptized in the Spirit of God. This is the gift that God gave them. And then later... That was, of course, the Jewish Pentecost. And then later in Acts 10, we have read about the Gentile Pentecost, right? When Peter was at the house of Cornelius and the worshipers there received the exact same experience that the Spirit of God was poured out upon them and they were baptized in the Spirit. That is the gift that was given to his people. But my friends, we see that uh, the Catechism goes on to talk about what the Spirit has done that he has given to me, so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ. This is the work of the Spirit of God, that when the Spirit of God comes into our life, he does something, and that he institutes an unbreakable bond between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is that grand doctrine that we've talked about so many times from this pulpit, of union with Christ, that believers are brought into a saving Union with Jesus. And the, the, the engineer, if I may say, the, the agent of bringing us into union with Christ is the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who does that work, and he makes me share in Christ. He joins us, he unites us to Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that from Christ flow to the believer 
all these benefits, many benefits. Now in the catechism class, I always like to represent that as when you plug something in. When you plug something into the wall, right? If I have a computer here or a fan or even this organ, right? There it sits. It's a, it's a dead piece of wood and plastic, right? Completely useless. Until, until that cord right there is plugged into the power source. And when that union is established, now that organ springs to life and the delightful music that comes from it is present. Well, let that cord be pulled out again and it turns again to a worthless uh, a heap of wood and plastic and whatever else is in there. How necessary it is for that union to take place. And that's why I put on the outline here this third truth, this third truth that is so critical, Christ and the Spirit. Because in Scripture, those two are so interwoven, my friends, that the work of Christ is the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is the work of Christ. Now let me show that to you, first of all, in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, and verse 14 to 17. Here the apostle is speaking. For this reason, he says, again, Ephesians 3 and verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So, here is the Father. Here is Paul praying to God the Father that he would strengthen with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now notice in these verses that being strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man is the same thing in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In fact, if you read this with a strict literalism, right, you would completely misunderstand it. You'd say, well, how can we be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man? Is it the spirit that dwells in us, or is it Christ who dwells in us? The apostle seems confused here. Why is he staying strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man? And then he goes right on to say, so that Christ may dwell. Well, is it the spirit who dwells in us, or Christ who dwells in our hearts through faith? Again, my friends, that's so critical to understand that where the spirit works, Christ works. And where Christ is, the Spirit is. There is that inseparable connection between what the Spirit does and what Christ does. That's why our catechism says that by the Spirit given to us, He makes me share in Christ. Now there's another even more surprising verse that many people find very confusing. And I confess on on first read it is somewhat confusing. But in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 15, In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 15, now here in this chapter, Paul is talking about the difference between the old covenant that the Jewish people lived under and the new covenant that began at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit upon his people. And Paul talks, and read with me here in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 14, he's talking about the Jewish people. He says their minds were hardened. uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 14, their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. In other words, it can only be removed in Christ. But in verse 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. There's this this covering over their eyes. They can't see the truth. 
They read Moses, and Moses testified about the coming of Christ, but the Jewish people can't see it. There's this, somebody's pulled, we even have that expression, right, that you pull the wool over their eyes. They, you can't see. They're blind to it. Now, how does that veil, how is it taken away? Well, in verse 16, Paul says, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, and again, that's the Lord Jesus, the veil is taken away. And then verse 17, and, let, and read this with me. Now, the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, is the Spirit. Now, immediately you, you step back and think, well, now, wait a minute. The Lord is the Spirit. That must be quite difficult to understand. Is Jesus and the Spirit the same person? Is there any distinction between Jesus and the Spirit? And yet here the Apostle is very clear. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Well, there's the answer, isn't it? It's the Spirit of the Lord. That is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. But my friends, I, I, I point out to you that first clause, now the Lord is the Spirit, where Paul says that the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the second and the third persons of the Trinity, are so closely joined and married together that Paul says, when you come to the Lord Jesus, the veil is lifted off your eyes, and you can see the truth. Now, coming to the Lord Jesus and having that veil lifted, that is the same thing as coming to the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. Coming to Jesus is coming to the Spirit. Coming to the Spirit is coming to Jesus. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, and there you have that union, right? The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord. They're, they're not the same person. There is a distinction, the Spirit of the Lord. But still, where one comes to Christ, they come to the Spirit. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ. Those two are so inseparably joined together. Christ and the Spirit. You'll remember that Jesus himself said when he promised the Spirit in John 16... Jesus said about the work of the Spirit, he said, He will glorify me. That is the work of the Spirit of God, to bring us to Christ and to make us share in all his benefits. So the Spirit and, the, and Christ, inseparable. One other verse, you don't need to turn here, but I'll just read this for you. In 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 13, we read this, For by one Spirit, and I would prefer to translate that for with one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now that's clearly referring back to that baptism that took place on the day of Pentecost. And what does Paul say? This Spirit joined us to Christ. We were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And there you have it. The spirit brings us and baptizes us into one body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then, my friends, what are these benefits? Now, there are so many benefits. All the blessings of salvation, every single one. In fact, it needs to be emphasized that every single spiritual blessing that we receive only comes to us as we are joined to Christ. Never can we receive a single spiritual blessing unless we are joined to Christ. Yes, we receive many blessings in God's common grace that he pours out upon his people or that he pours upon all people 
that they share in the sunshine and the rain and the general goodness of God. But the saving benefits of, of God, of God's saving grace, only come to us as we are joined to Jesus Christ. Now, these benefits, you can talk of faith, and our catechism mentioned that, right? Through true faith, that's one of the benefits that comes to us when we are brought into union with Christ. But tonight, our catechism especially wants to bring to our attention the fact that the Spirit is our comforter. He is our advocate. And you see that in John 14, and this is what we read together in John 14 and verse 16, where Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Now our catechism has said that he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. Now that's clearly the language of John 14 and verse 16. And you know that that word helper in John 14 and 16 was translated in the old King James Version with the word comforter. Comforter. Now the problem with that translation is that it's a little too narrow. It's true. The Spirit is a comforter, but the word here is a very broad word. And you see that reflected in this translation where it says helper. So the Spirit helps us by comforting us, by He is our advocate, He is He speaks for us, He is our teacher. In fact, if you read on in John 14, it talks about Him being the Spirit of truth and how He's going to teach us all things that we need to know. But at any rate, this is the benefit that the Catechism brings to our attention tonight. That He is our comforter, our advocate, our helper. And this chapter, my friends, is so full of this comfort that God brings to his people. This is a chapter of comfort, isn't it? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What precious words those have been for the people of God throughout all ages. And this is the the benefit that our catechism highlights, that Christ sends us the Spirit who is our comforter. Now, was not Christ a comforter for his people? Of course he was. But Christ left, didn't he? Christ ascended into heaven. We talked about that on Ascension Day. Remember, Christ is the one who descended and also the one who ascended into heaven. But he's absent from us now. And now the Catechism speaks to us of the comfort that Christ gave to his people when Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. I was with you. I was your helper, your advocate, your teacher. But I am now going back to my Father. But I will ask the Father. He will send you another helper, another counselor. And he will be with you forever. This spirit will be with you as long as you live on this earth. This spirit will always be there. He will not go. I will be your advocate in heaven. Remember the sermon that we preached here on the ascension of Christ? Not on ascension day, but the catechism sermon on the ascension was that Christ is our advocate in heaven. But now Christ has asked the Father to give us an advocate on earth. And so we have one who stands next to us In fact, if you look at that term, it's very interesting, the term 
uh, it's, it's a combination of words that basically means something like one that you call to your side. He's your advocate. And he stands there at your side, ready to speak for you, ready to guide you, ready to keep you from danger, and ready to teach you all things that you need to know. He does all these things for us. He is the paraclete. I think probably you remember that word. I recognize it. The paraclete is the Greek term. He's one that we call to our side to help us and to assist us. Well, my friends, this is the truth that is given us then in this Lord's Day, in this question, that the Spirit is God and he is given to us to be our comforter. Well, let me make some application on this, my friends. In the first place, I want to speak something about the role of controversy in church history. What a blessing this has been. I know that seems strange, doesn't it, to talk about the blessing of controversies. But if you look at that quote that I gave you from A.A. Hodge, a great Presbyterian theologian, we respect him very highly, he says, the church has always advanced towards clearer conceptions and more accurate definitions of divine truth through a process of active controversy. Let me ask you in your own life, my friends, the times that you were in a, in a, in a controversial situation like this where you had a controversy over some truth, maybe a disagreement with another believer, or maybe just a book that you read that kind of tipped you upside down and completely upended your thinking of what was true and what was false. Maybe it's something that your children came home with, right? We have that. And you were forced to study something. And isn't it the case, my friends, that God has used controversy in your life to bring you closer into his truth, to help you understand more clearly the doctrines of the word of God? What drove you to do that? What drove anybody in the church to do that? What drove the church fathers at the Council of Nicaea to sit down there and define and articulate clearly the doctrine of the deity of the divinity of Christ? Why did they do that? Well, because the church was in this huge controversy. Granted, it was not carried on in a very God-honoring way. But still, God in his providence overruled all the bitterness of the controversy to give us the definition of the most important doctrine of the Christian faith which is the deity of Christ. There is nothing more important than that. The deity, the God, the, the, the divinity of Christ is the foundation rock of all Christianity. And now, furthermore, we have our, this teaching on the divinity of the Holy Spirit. I listed some other controversies. The controversy between Augustine and Pelagius. Again, which gave us to think deeply about what is grace? What is election? What does it mean that God saves people by grace? All these truths were wrestled through by the theologians and by the church, by the believers of that day. And out of that controversy came the doctrines which we call Calvinism today and which we profess in this Christian church. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. I mean, I can't list all the doctrines that we, we have today articulated so clearly. What is justification? How does a person get right with God? Think of Luther and Calvin and all the controversies and all the books written and all the ink spilled over this controversy. And out of it came this massive blessing to the Christian church that we can think clearly and biblically about what it means to be right with God. The liberal and evangelical debate of the... Of the, of a, of the 20s and 30s and 40s, 
gave us clear and accurate definitions of what does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired. Again, out of that acrimonious controversy came this, came this truth of what does it mean now. That's what we mean by the term evangelical. An evangelical is just someone who believes that the, word of, that the Bible is the word of God written. And all of that came from that controversy. The, the, the uh, debates between baptism uh, regarding should infants be baptized is far greater. We talked about this, uh, was it two weeks ago, right? When we talked about that what baptism is helps us to understand who should be baptized. Well, my friends, why do we even discuss those things? Wasn't it the controversy that drove us to it? It's the controversy about baptism that drove us to understand what is the covenant of grace? What was the covenant of grace under the Old Testament? What was it under the New Testament? What did circumcision mean? What does baptism mean in the New Testament? Is there any relationship between the two? All these questions that have been agitated in our churches and have driven us to dig deep into the scriptures and to know these things. And so, my friends, controversy, a painful thing, oftentimes not a very God-honoring thing, and yet in the providence of God, he, he overrules it to bring us to a more accurate understanding of the truth of God's word. Now, that's not a plea for more controversy in the church. But it is a plea that we should study the controversies of the past. And that when there are controversies and disagreements over truth, that we discuss those. Don't shove them under the rug or or walk past them somehow. Look them full in the face. You don't need to be afraid of that. Open up the word of God. Get on your knees and pray, Lord, please guide me into the truth. There was a man named George Gillespie who was at the Westminster Assembly. And somebody looked over him. He was writing so many things down on a piece of paper. and One person kind of curiously kind of looked to see what he was writing. And there on the page he wrote, More light, Lord. More light. I think that if we carried on our discussions about the the, the doctrines of of the truths of the Scripture with that approach, more light, Lord. Lord, guide me, teach me. And now it's the role of the blessed Spirit of God who stands beside us to be our teacher and to guide us into the truth. That should make us to be men and women of prayer as we carry on these, or as we study these controversial truths. But my friends, certainly the major application tonight is this application of comfort. That we have an advocate in heaven, but now on earth. One who stands beside us. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed somebody to speak for you? Today we we would call it a lawyer, right? But just a situation, be it as involved as that where you needed a lawyer, but any situation where you just just wish that somebody would come along and, and, and state your case for you. Maybe you're not a person great with words, and you just wish that somebody would come along who who understood your situation, your dilemma, who would speak for you and make your case to the judge. Well, this is the truth that we have. Jesus has asked the Father, and the Father has sent us in his love and in his grace and mercy, one who stands alongside us. And for how long? For as long as you have two feet on this earth, The Spirit of God stands beside us. 
What's the conclusion, my friends, of this truth then? I want you to think about this tonight. I want you to take this with you to your bed tonight, in your prayers tonight. I want you to take this into the coming week. I want you to take this truth with you, to turn it over in your mind, to pray over it, to think about it. That if you're a Christian this evening, now obviously this only applies to Christians, but if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ tonight, you never can reach a place in your life where He is not. You never can reach a place in your life where He is not beside you. That means, my friends, that even when we go into the path of sin, He stands beside us. He still convicts us. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be looking at this. Stop. He's always there with us, even in the path of sin. The Spirit is right there. You never can find a place where He is not. He was there when Mr. Bronsink was slammed, that drunk driver slammed into Mr. Bronsink. He's with Mr. Bronsink now in the hospital. Carrie, he was there with you when that car hit you. He was alongside you. Roger, he was with you in the hospital last week. Mr. Nagel, at your birthday, turning... 83, I think, there alongside of you. Melanie, graduating this week. Andrew, graduating this week. He stands alongside you. I want this to be personal to you tonight, my friends. To think of the Spirit of God standing there, always with you, always counseling, always nudging you in this direction. Now, the Spirit of God can be grieved when we ignore Him, when we dismiss the pricks of conscience, like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. But He's still there, my friends. The Bible even talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. And that's why this is such a serious thing, that as we live our life, the Spirit is there. And I I can't help but especially to think about Melanie and Andrew tonight as as they continue their life forward. But how will you go forward? Who will guide you? You're stepping out of the family home. You're stepping out. You're making so many decisions on your own. You have a freedom that you never had before. Who will guide you? Do you feel tonight your need for a guide? Do you feel tonight your need for someone to stand alongside you and to show you the way forward? Well, my friends, we, we, have, we have learned this evening that Jesus has asked the Father to send us one who will stand beside us and to guide us. And now our responsibility in this life is to welcome that guidance, to embrace it, to embrace it in a life of prayer and dependence upon the Spirit. Elsewhere, Paul will say, walk in step with the Spirit. That means every day of our life, Stepping out in dependence on Him. Stepping, in dependent, stepping out in dependence on His Word, which especially we must lean on to guide us in the way in which we should go. And what a blessing, my friends. 
What an incredible privilege to think about that. And I put that quote on the, on the outline as well. And especially some of you who've, who've been in accidents and, and, and had uh, setbacks in your health. Look at what uh, John Owen says here. He says, suppose a man under the greatest calamity that can possibly befall a child of God, or a confluence, or in other words, a combination of all those evils numbered by Paul in Romans 8.35. Let this man have the Holy Ghost performing the works mentioned before towards him. And despite of all his evils, in other words, of all the sufferings, his consolations will abound. Suppose him to have a sense of the love of God all the while shed abroad in his heart. A clear witness within that he is a child of God. Accepted with him that he is sealed and marked of God for his own. That he is an heir of the promises of God and the like. It is impossible that man, that woman, should not triumph in all his tribulations. My peace I give to you, said Jesus. And in the person of the Holy Spirit, my friends, we may experience that and know that in our life. The Holy Spirit does not keep us from the suffering in this life. But he gives us peace to live through those sufferings. And to persevere until our dying day. And no, the Spirit of God does not leave your side even when your last breath is being breathed. And when that moment comes, my friends, when we will transition from time to eternity, you will find that the Spirit is still alongside you. He still stands by you. And He'll usher you where? What the Spirit always does. What the Spirit did already here on earth. He'll usher you into the presence of Christ. Now that will be a happy day, my friends. And it's all because of the work of that Spirit standing beside us and bringing us through life into eternal life. My friends, let us live in dependence and constant uh, appreciation of the privilege we have of having so great a counselor and advocate next to us day by day. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. How can we ever think, O Lord, and praise you enough for this glorious privilege one thing to have a, an advocate in heaven, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ sitting at your right hand. But now to know that we have also an advocate who stands alongside us. He stands next to us. He takes our hand. He leads us. He picks us up when we fall. He guides us away from sin. He convicts us when we go into error. At times, he even disciplines us, corrects us, punishes us. And in all times, he is with us and he comforts us. And he gives us hope that even in our dying hour, he will lead us into the presence of our glorious Savior and King. Lord, we do pray for those who have had accidents and sickness in the past weeks, and who have had even close calls with death itself, that they would feel and sense in a special way the Spirit of God near them in the, in the trying hour, in the painful hour. And also for Melanie and Andrew and others who may be graduating, Lord, we pray that you would be their God and guide through life, even until death, and that they would lean on you. Even in those times when they become very confused, perhaps those times when they are led even to doubt, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. O Spirit of God, witness to their spirits that they are your children, and that they may lean on you and follow you all their life long.
Lord, please remember us and bless us and keep us then in your care. Give us a good week and bring us back together again in the coming Lord's Day. May it be to your glory. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our red hymnal again to number 392. Holy Ghost, dispel our sadness. Pierce the clouds of sinful night. Come, O source of sweetest gladness. Breathe your life and spread your light. We'll sing all three verses of 392 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.